0: bad guys are gonna reach out, but in the family, one at a time, see if they can find a soft spot where they can get money.
1: How do you prevent the people in Manila from taking over that role?
2: Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades, that at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated, or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives, Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed Color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones, and they create over 55 gorgeous multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best Case, Worst Case listeners get 10% off, plus free shipping on their first color kit with code Case. That's code Case.
1: Hello, and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is your host, Jim Clementi, retired FBI profiler, former New York City prosecutor, and writer-producer on CBS's Criminal Minds. And with me today is my lovely co-host.
2: Hi, everybody. It's Francie Hakes, former state and federal prosecutor. Hi, Jim. How are you doing? Good. How are you?
1: Well, aren't you excited? Today, we have a very special guest, a longtime friend and colleague of mine, and a friend of yours. Chris Voss. How hey. are you, Chris? <laughs>
0: hey, happy to be. And by the way, on your on your
1: resume, you left an important item off
0: because I know you worked your way through college as an Elvis impersonator. Isn't that correct?
1: <laughs> I did once sing a uh, an Elvis song in karaoke, if that Makes it
2: no, me working my way through college. I can tell we're gonna like having Chris Voss. See, Chris, normally it's (laughs) me, same hair. I'm the only person who keeps Jim in line, so it's gonna be great to have. I get help? yeah. Oh,
1: I just realized this is a big mistake, (laughs) anyway. Excellent, Chris Voss. Would you tell us what you did for a living when we first met?
0: I'm the I was an FBI hostage negotiator, was the FBI's lead international kidnapping negotiator, or terrorism and. Stuff like
1: that. Yeah. And how long did you do that?
0: FBI agent for 24 years, hostage negotiator for 15, in charge of every kidnapping of every American overseas for about seven. So that sounds like a little bit of a
1: stressful job when you does, say, Francie. It
2: does sound like a lot of pressure. I'm curious about training is there training for something like that or do you just sort of fall into it because you have a natural ability
0: you get there a little bit at a time uh the negotiation unit they would always keep an eye on every negotiator they ever trained and then they would see how self-initiated you were and what you did with it and then you know they would bring you along so it's it is training and it is very much they keep a watchful eye on you and then as you get better they try to draw they try to draw you more in and then at some point in time, we began to invent it on our own.
1: Well, it's a story for another time, but we should tell the audience that we actually first met in a karaoke bar in Manila, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> and, and you were dressed as Elvis. <laughs> there you go. That does sound like a great Something story. Something like that. But let's get serious now. The fact is that we worked together in Cirque. The Critical Incident Response Group for a number of years, but we never saw each other. We were both on the road doing we our own road, yeah. things, and we did run into each other in a karaoke bar in Manila, bar which Manila. is kind of crazy. But why don't we start with you telling us what kind of case you're going to talk about? Is it a best case or a worst case? Best case. Best One of my favorites. Yeah, it was awesome. Okay, great. And what kind of case was it? Well, Kidnapping. Okay, good. That's uh, a good start. Kidnapping in the Philippines, one okay. of my
0: favorite places on the planet.
1: All right. Well, apparently you go there a lot. I mean, and hang out in karaoke bars because that's where I met you. But the fact is that we'd like you to tell us what you were doing, what was going on in your life at the time that this case came to you.
0: Well, I'm, I'm running all our kidnap response operations, the negotiation strategy. The FBI uh, became the U.S. government's designated expert. On um, negotiation strategy and kidnapping cases, as opposed to what we would call an illegal detention, which is like uh, somebody's hiking near Iran and the Iranian government's grab them. Mm-hmm. You know, that's an arrest. That's not a kidnapping. So kidnappings are, are criminals and terrorists. They're not governments, not the government of Iran, not the government of North Korea,
1: and didn't, didn't get in the middle of any of those. Okay. So- what was going on on this particular day? Do you remember what you were doing when this case came in?
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm at my office in, uh, in CERG, a critical incident response group that you and I talked about just a moment ago. It's it was down at the time in a, in a covert location, so to speak, uh, which the post office knew about, which didn't make it so covert. Yeah. But I'm in my office, you know, it's a typical, I don't remember exactly what day of the week it is, but, you know, it's a 13-hour time difference between U.S. and Manila. So something goes down late in the afternoon, I'm going to find out fairly early in the day that uh, some American has has gotten grabbed and put themselves in an unfortunate position to uh, be in a lot of trouble.
2: I'm curious, Chris, is there a difference between a hostage situation and a kidnapping with respect to what you did?
0: There could be, depending upon what type of, like um mine kidnapping with demands, uh, which is going to be a ransom or politics or both. And all political demands ultimately devolve into money because bad guys, even terrorists, even Al-Qaeda, you know, they figure out how much money they can make and suddenly they become businessmen. They lose their altruism very quickly, if you will, once you start dangling money in front of them, which is why most of them are hiding their money in various international banks around the world.
2: Well, I can just imagine our listeners are wondering why you were in Manila, in the Philippines. Why was the FBI even there? What was the mission?
0: All right. A good question. All right, So I wasn't there, but we have an office in Manila. You oh, know, by the way, um, to get back to the distinguishing the type of kidnapping, like we didn't work child abductions. There's not a demand. They're, they're not trying to get money. They're trying not to move political actions. So, you know, that that the child abduction sort of thing is much more in, in a gym in you guys' uh, wheelhouse and a mine. Right. Not that I couldn't do it better, but. Uh,
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's nice to believe that anyway. Yeah. Um, so Chris, what did you first learn about this case? I had a great relationship with the State
0: Department, which really made FBI headquarters really mad because there were key guys at State Department's Counterterrorism division, mostly retired military guys, as opposed to lifelong State Department employees. What does that mean? What that means is these guys like getting stuff done. And we had a great relationship. And so they would often find out before the FBI did that an American got kidnapped. And they'd call me because they knew I was in charge of deploying the strategy and resources to get somebody out. So I get a call from state and they say, look, you know, uh, American's been grabbed in Manila. We don't know the full extent of what's going on, but this American's gotten grabbed. And so then I would call FBI headquarters, SIAC, another government acronym.
1: Right. And any time we hit a government acronym, we're going to interject. What does that mean?
0: Strategic Information Operations Center. Their job was to find out first and then call me. So I delighted
1: in calling them (laughs) because it would annoy them. Because you're the kind of guy who likes (laughs) to annoy people. (laughs) I'm starting
2: to see why you two are
1: friends. (laughs) So SIOC is the FBI's state-of-the-art operations center. And it's filled with all the computing power in the world and all sorts of massive screens, every wall and every desk. It just has connections to everywhere. And it's the place where we do major operations. When 9-11 happened, we spent a lot of time in that room. When the Olympic bombing happened in Atlanta, a lot of time in that room. Right, right. So you called SIAC. What happens next?
0: I got to start making notifications like in all directions. I got to get SIAC up to speed because as soon as I start making moves, so to speak, and they're going to hear about it, again, they don't like getting caught off guard. So I call them. Americans got grabbed. They got to make their notifications across the different internal headquarters divisions. I got to start spinning up negotiators. I got to start finding out where family members are because our strategy was find every family member within the United States because the bad guys are gonna find them. So I gotta get a hostage negotiator in their house as fast as I can because eventually the bad guys are gonna reach out there, but in the family, one at a time, see if they can find a soft spot where they can get money. Mm-hmm. I gotta get out in front of that. Then like on TV, Tom Cruise in his movies, you know, he gets from Washington DC to Singapore in six seconds. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, very convenient how you can travel at the speed of light.
0: Right, exactly. The, the reality is it probably is going to take four days to get anybody into any country mm-hmm. because we've got to clear all the red tape. So we've got to get the red tape started. Whatever country the kidnapping's in, we have to be the the guy that's running the FBI office, got to go to the ambassador, get permission from the ambassador to invite more FBI people into the country. hmm and they're always very conscious of footprint and disruption. And so the and bureaucratic- the U.S. Tape, ambassador you're talking about. U.S. ambassador. Yeah, the U.S. ambassador is in charge of everything every American government employee does in another country, whether you're with the State Department or not. The ambassador is a guy who ultimately gives you permission to do and not do things. We've got a million different directions. We've got to move really fast because we can't get behind the curve.
2: Well, and so these are all things that are going on behind the scenes, but- At this early stage, what did you know about the person who was kidnapped or who might have kidnapped them? Did you have any information?
0: Yeah, we started gathering information um, right away on the victim and his families. And as one of my Italian brothers who was on a negotiation team in New York, he always had a way of saying things. He used to say that our victim said, we got the UN of victims here because he was (laughs) Canadian born. Chinese ethnicity, American citizen.
1: Are you making fun of the New York accent there and that little (laughs) thing there? I just wondered.
0: Did I do a bad job? (laughs) Forget
1: about it. Come on. How you doing? How you doing? I'm
2: feeling very outnumbered at this moment. Good,
1: because, uh, yes, we're we're both New Yorkers at heart. Yeah, so first of
0: all, I really love that our victim is a New York-based guy because if we can keep the point of contact on a negotiation in New York – I can stand up the team in New York around our negotiator. I got a, the team in New York was a team that I helped build. They're solid people. They will do what I ask them to do, and worry about whether or not anybody cares about that later on. Because we're going to move faster than the bureaucracy is ever going to move. This kidnapping is going to move faster than any part of the bureaucracy. We got to get out in front of it. And I start standing up the team in New York. The girlfriend of the victims in New York. Most of his families in Manila. I can't get an entire team around everybody in the family in Manila. If we can keep the center of gravity of this case in New York, I get complete control. But how can you do that? Yeah, bad guys are going to talk to whoever is going to give them the money or they think is going to give them the money. So what we got to do is I need the most coachable person to be our great intermediary. We're going to coach behind the scenes. There's great power in hiding your position. Any great CEO is not going to go to the table. They're going to send emissaries on their behalf. And we're following the same rule. We're going to try to keep our decision makers away from the table.
1: Okay. So how do you know that the kidnappers will have the ability to contact somebody in New York versus people that are right there in Manila? Well, they're going to start dialing for dollars,
0: as we say. And so they're going to start reaching out to multiple points of contact. Now, in the opening moment, They've already started to contact the girlfriend in New York, which I don't have a thousand percent of that information. We very shortly find out that she's already in receipt of emails from the bad guy because he's trying to figure out what's the weakest link, what's the nearest point of contact. And girlfriend is probably most likely to go to right away because the victim is going to, the heartstrings are going to get pulled there first. Mom's coming second, but first they're probably going to look for the girlfriend. Well,
2: and one of the things that's so interesting and scary about this is that. You all are truly behind the eight ball. That is, they grab the person, the kidnapping victim that they're going to want to ransom, and they probably fairly shortly after that make contact. When you're just spinning up, you've got to find those family or related points of contact. And so you're way behind the kidnappers already. As you said, the girlfriend had already gotten email. So what do you do when you walk into the girlfriend's or make contact with a girlfriend and there's already been communication?
0: Well, uh, we kind of expect that has happened. We need to drive sort of a negotiation wedge, if you will, into this scenario. Again, it's like any other negotiation. You, you want to drop something in that disrupts the pattern at the moment, but you don't want the other side to know what you've done. We'd always do that one or two ways with a couple of steps. First step is make them like Pavlov's dog. Kidnappers lust for money, lust for it. So, to get them to drop their guard, the first thing you got to say to them is simply like, You're going to get your money. And then they relax. And as soon as we get them to relax, their guard has come down. And now we can start dropping other strategic tactics in to lengthen things out and begin to create a little disorder on the other side, but they don't have it traceable to us. They don't and, know we're doing it to
2: them. And do you tell the kidnappers at this point that you're involved or you're using the girlfriend? And just telling her how to respond or taking over her devices and pretending you're her.
0: How does that work? Um, We never tell the bad guys we're there. They're going to assume somebody might be, and they'll do a lot of testing throughout the process. And no matter how close they get, we just, look, we never admit we're there. They suspect it. We never confirm it. They can not say, I know somebody's there helping you. We've already coached the victim up on a response or what to say. And we do a lot of coaching. Lots and lots and lots of coaching, lots of prep in the moment, and we can get people through.
1: So in order not to invalidate that entire methodology, we won't ask you how you coach them, what you say to them, so that you can still use those practices. But we would like to know, in this particular case, how did it proceed? Now you know she's been in contact. You want to make her the center of gravity on the case. How do you prevent the people in Manila from taking over that role?
0: Well, that's exactly what happened. I stood a team up around the girlfriend in New York and we're rocking and rolling. And but actually the best person, as it turns out, to be our point of contact is the brother and he's in Manila and the entire family's in Manila. So I tried really hard to keep the center of gravity in New York, but it was shifting to Manila. There was nothing I could do about it. And were they visiting Manila or did they live there? They didn't all live there. The family had gotten together there. It was a little bit of a family gathering. And so they were there for this family gathering.
1: So can you just back up a little bit and tell us how they accomplished this kidnapping? Because if I'm traveling to Manila or any, any other country, I want to know how to avoid being kidnapped.
0: All right. Yeah. Well, this is a real easy one to avoid. Because the kidnapper was a cab driver. So those are easy people to avoid, right? Well, <laughs> sort of. Not well, when
2: you get, land in the airport and trust the cab driver to there take you go. to a hotel. Yeah. So
0: what it, uh, the only lone kidnapper we ever worked, ever. And I'd never even heard of a lone kidnapper before. So and at the time, and probably still to this day, if I hadn't heard of it, that doesn't mean it didn't happen, but it probably didn't happen. Because at the time, there was about five of us in the entire world that were as up to speed on kidnappings. You know, a couple of Brits, a couple of Canadians, a couple of, you know, the Australians were catching up, but mostly us and the Brits deal with this on a regular basis. So we get a pretty good idea what's going on. And there's only about, as I said, you know, ballpark five of us. So this was a lone kidnapper. Right. Did he do this impulsively? No, he he had a great strategy. He masqueraded as a cab driver. He kept a bottle of ether under his seat Ether. If you got in the back of his car and you looked like you had money and you were dumb enough to fall asleep, if you fell asleep on your own in the back of his cab, he'd sprinkle ether all over you. The next thing you know, you wake up in chains in his
1: basement. Wow.
2: Well, so That how- sounds
1: like a serial killer, though. It does. He killed a few people. Really? Yeah.
2: So was there, were there any witnesses? What, what was the story you were getting about? I mean, how did you know that's what happened to the victim?
0: Well, we found out exactly how it went down because we caught the guy. Uh, this is one of the great things about this case is we rescued the victim. We, law enforcement et al., Philippine National Police, executed the rescue. Second try, as a matter of fact. But our kidnapper on the other side was so smart and was so convinced that he couldn't get caught. He started providing proof of life right away. He, he made contact through the Internet. A lot of stuff was eminently traceable. The first, he ran a antenna to the roof of a building that was three blocks away from where he was actually holding the hostage. So the first time the Philippine National Police say, you know, we triangulated the antenna, we know where this guy is, we're gonna go out, we're gonna do a rescue. And which the family was in favor of, I was a little worried about, but because of the antenna at another location, they missed so far that the kidnapper got back on the phone the next morning and said, They expected him to be screaming because they knew they hit a dry hole. He gets on the phone and says, so have you got my money together? And they're like shocked. This guy didn't even know there'd been a rescue attempt they missed by so
2: far. So let's back up. Can you take us through what you obviously learned later, but can you take us through the play-by-play on the kidnapping? This guy lands in Manila from – did he fly from New York?
0: He came in from New York. He's there with his family, and as it turns out, a family member – had asked him to stop by this particular mall to pick some stuff up, the Green Hills Mall. And he would never have gotten into this cab. So when the, you know, the internal fractures afterwards, when everybody's pointing their fingers, mom is pointing her finger at a girlfriend who asked him to stop off at the mall. And mom is like, if you hadn't asked him to stop off at the mall, he never would have gone there.
2: Chris, can you tell us how this kidnapping started? I mean, you said that there was a cab driver involved or the the kidnapper was a fake cab driver. What was Bob doing when he landed at the airport? Tell Uh, us play by play what happened.
0: Bob Bob had been in Manila for a while. His family was there. Bob's an entrepreneur. He's got businesses all over the place. I don't know if they were gathered in Manila for a birthday, a family member's birthday, but pretty much the entire family was in Manila. But they were from the United States. Bob's a New York guy. Okay. Um, and his, his family as well? Um, Canadians. Some of the family gone to New York. Some of the family gone to the Philippines for various business interests.
1: Okay. So they were kind of living back and forth between the United States, Canada, and the Philippines. Yes, correct. Okay, great.
0: I'm willing to admit that.
1: So he gets off a plane. He gets into a cab. What kind of cab? Just typical street yellow cab. Wow. You know
0: um, a typical cab that you might pick up at any mall or at any hotel you know they get they get cabs run all over the place in the Philippines pretty much like in the. US some are some are designated you know they have colors to know that they're normal cabs and they pick up at all the all the normal locations. okay so he
1: gets in what seems like a regular cab
0: and what happens to him? And so he makes his green hill you know he's getting ready to make his Green Hills mall run but he's tired. So he falls asleep and he's a guy who looks like he's got money and he's a, a successful entrepreneur. So relatively speaking, if you're an American and you're even a poor American in the Philippines has a, got a lot of money because mm. Philippines by and large is, you know, it's a developing world. They don't make a lot of money there. Right. So the bad guy sees a prospect, sprinkles him with ether. The guy wakes up in his basement in, uh, of one of his houses and chains. Bad guy takes some photos of him. Finds out from him, email address of the girlfriend, starts shooting out photos of him that he's got him. Now, here's the problem. The problem is that we had just changed our proof of life strategy in our hostage negotiations based on a case that I'd worked also in the Philippines about a year earlier, where we'd never gotten proof of life. And I didn't push for proof of life because we knew the hostages were alive. A lot of people think... If you know they're alive, what do you need proof of life for? And that's a valid question in some ways because you don't want to ask for proof of life because you're going to trigger a reciprocity debt. Like any negotiations, you want to be careful of triggering debts and then not being able to make good on those debts, reciprocity, because now you got bad faith.
2: So in other words, they give you proof of life, you have to give them something.
1: If I ask you for proof of life and you give it to me, I owe you. Okay. So... In this case, you got proof of life sent without even asking, so you Which don't is owe them anything. There's, there's
0: two problems, because now we changed the proof of life strategy to create other opportunities. Okay. This is a brand new strategy that I was planning on trying out because of the previous case. I, I had rethought our entire approach, and I was sure I was on the right track, and I worked with some smart people. And as I was changing the strategy entirely, I, I would say to the guys that I was working with, like, you know, am I high here? Am I on, you know, am, am I off track? Because it's going to be a radical change. And everybody that was there with me the whole time was like, no, you, this is, we're going to do this. You're on the right track. We got to try this out. Now, unfortunately, you're trying out a new strategy when somebody's life is on the line. Yeah, that you know, sounds that's a little
1: bit risky. risky. It's a little <laughs> risky,
0: which is why, first of all, I'd heard a kidnapper use it in another case. It was an epiphany when I heard a bad guy it. And the key to all these strategies was we need to get the people we're coaching to say the things that they would have said anyway, if we weren't there, Mm -hmm. which of those are strategically smart, which are stupid. And then stick to the ones that are strategically smart. That's how you get your advantage. The bad guys never know you're there. If you stick to the questions a family member would ask if they didn't know any better. Okay. So are you... in a position to reveal this new strategy to us, or is this yeah, the no, new strategy? No, it's it's fine. We used proof of life in most international kidnappings or kidnappings in general, which a lot of people think is a very weak form. Is your security question, you know, or your bank question, you know, what was the name of your first dog? What high school did you go to? Um, it gets answered because it's a what question. The other side feels in control when you ask them a what question. It's it's a deferential approach. But it, in fact, is a one-word answer Mm -hmm. that only you will know. I mean, in a a movie, Man on Fire with Denzel Washington, he used used the same strategy. He said, she got a bear. What's the little girl call her bear? It's a what question. Mm -hmm. It's a one-word answer. It's easy for the bad guys to get the answer. That's the problem. They can get the answer and they can give it back too easily. They don't have to stop and think about it. They turn to her, what's the name of your bear? She answers. It's a one-word answer, so they're not going to screw it up. They can pass it through two or three people to get it back into the negotiations. It's no heavy lifting for them. That's problem number one.
2: Why is that a problem?
0: Because if you give them heavy lifting, they have to go through a lot of effort. What that does is it coordinates the entire team, and you've now forced collaboration among the team on the other side. They don't know you forced the collaboration. you force them to talk with each other. And they didn't know that you'd force them to do that. And there's a tremendous advantage to that because now they are all united instead of being disarrayed. And now you got to, united, you begin to lead their entire team in a specific direction, but they have to be united first. Seems
2: like you'd want the opposite. It seems like you'd want their team, the kidnapping team, to be in disarray so that you could take advantage of it.
0: Great thought. And that's exactly what happened in the case that went bad where hostages got killed because when they're in disarray, their point of contact, their negotiator, might agree to a ransom, when in fact the rest of them haven't because they're in disarray. And that's exactly what happened in a previous case with an Al-Qaeda related group in the Philippines. Their spokesperson thought they had a deal and they had the guy who was holding the hostages didn't like the deal. So since they weren't organized, when the ransom payment went down range, the guy holding the hostages said, I'm not letting him go, and he didn't. Their point of contact is embarrassed, and now he's out, he's done. And they still got the hostages, And money's gone, and now that their entire group is in a shambles, how are you gonna get them organized to ever let the hostages go?
2: Okay, so that makes sense. So apparently you've gotten proof of life in this case for Bob, and-
0: Well, and that's the problem because we didn't, he got it without us making him coordinate to get it. I felt we were on the right path, but I needed to get it out of him instead of having him give it to us. So now actually, in in a weird way, we're now another step behind
1: the the curve here, and I don't know what to do. Well, that sounds like a gripping moment at which we will break, and when we come back, we're going to find out what you did to undo the damage they did by doing something that you would normally ask them for.
2: (laughs) Kind of crazy. Kind of crazy.
1: So, Chris, before we go, though, I would like to get – any references or recommendations you might have that our listeners could read about this topic. And
2: read while they're waiting for the conclusion of Chris's discussion and
0: case. Oh, very good. All right. So my book has never split the difference. And it is how we took all these strategies from the hostage and kidnapping world, put them into business deals and personal life so you can put the same kind of emotional intelligence into your business deals, into your personal life, and make great deals, and actually let people leave them happy. Awesome. And aren't you going to launch a podcast shortly? Well, and along these lines, we're going to start talking about these very strategies where I'm going to launch a podcast called The Third Degree, where we bring people who made deals in and had deals made with them. And I'm going to give them the third degree on how did this person make this great deal with you? What did they do to get you to make
1: this deal that you didn't expect to make? Got it. Sounds interesting. So you're going to apply those tenets that you learned saving people's lives as an FBI hostage negotiator to business deals and try to see how they work together or not with each other. How you can work the same magic. Wow, awesome.
0: Oh,
2: magic in negotiating. I think I need a little bit of assistance with my partner in crime here, Chris. So let's talk after.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, we want to thank you for listening to this episode of Best Case, Worst Case. And we'll have Chris back on for his dramatic conclusion of this international kidnapping case. Till next time, signing off. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clemente at Empire Studios LA. Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. Music composed and performed by Simba Zumba. And hosted by Wanda.
2: You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: If you want to do something about child sexual abuse, Darkness to Light can help. Did you know that more than 90% of the time children are sexually abused by someone they know?
2: Jim, this isn't about stranger danger. It's about learning the true risks. Darkness to Light's training can help prevent, recognize, and react to child sexual abuse in your community.
1: When you make the decision to get involved, kids can be protected. It starts with you.
2: Visit www.d2l.org to take the training and learn more.
1: That's d the number 2l.org.